Welcome back to the History of the Barbarians podcast, season one, episode number 10, titled The Little Wolf. My name is Josh Hirschman. We're here to continue our journey through barbarian history with our story of the Goths. We've had a bit of a hiatus over the last month, but we are back now and ready to get the story going again. This week, we'll be looking at the Goths and the beginnings of their conversion to Christianity. When we last left off in the story, we looked at the Goths, in particular the Tervingi, economically and culturally. A big part of all cultures are what they think about religions. So today's episode is going to focus on a man named Uphilus and the beginning steps of the conversion of the Goths to Christianity. Uphilus, which is the Latinized version of the name Wolfila, or Little Wolf in Gothic, will be the main character of our story today. Wolfila's grandfather was from a village named Sadagalthina in Parnassus, the district of Roman province of Cappadocia, Tertia, which is near modern-day Parsalon in Turkey, about an hour to drive uh, today southeast of Ankara. Not much is known about this man, but his story was not uncommon. Barbarians around the fringes of the Roman Empire were making raids into imperial lands, carrying off gold, loot, food, livestock, and slaves. Many of these slaves were early Christians, and therefore the first contact with the religion for most of the barbarians. The Goths were no different in this sense. During the 3rd century, the Goths would raid into Thrace, Moesia Superior and, in, and Inferior, Pannonia, and Anatolia. This brought them into contact with many early Christians that would be brought back as slaves. The Tervingi, in particular, would have the most contact with these types of slaves. So Wulfila was born in 311 CE to a Gothic father of the free class of people, putting his birth 50 or so years after his Greek Christian grandfather was brought back from raids in Cappadocia in the 250s or 260 CE. He was a free man, so somewhere along the lines, the shackles of slavery were left with his father or grandfather. He was considered the Moses of his time and the Bishop of the Goths. Sometime in the 330s, Wulfila made his first trip to Constantinople after the fetus between Arieric and Constantine the Great. By this time, he was in his 20s and already a Christian priest. He could read and write in both Latin and in Greek, which would mean that he had been educated, implying that he was of an upper-class social stratus. While he was, while he was in the imperial capital, he impressed many of the high-ranking clergy of Christianity. Eusebius who was the bishop of Nicomedia in modern-day western Turkey and would be the imperial bishop of Constantinople, therefore one of the more important bishops in Christianity, was one of the men of the church that was impressed with our friend Little Wolf. Because of this networking and the spread of Christianity amongst the Goths in, in the Council of Antioch in 341, Ufilus is pronounced the bishop of the Christians in the Getic land, or the bishop of the Goths. He would then go on to tend to his flock and convert many more Goths, primarily Tervingi, to Christianity. Now, throughout the lands of the Goths, there had been several men of the church. We know that Caniva, way back after the Battle of Abritus in 251, had brought back Roman Christians that would eventually become free men among the Goths. If you'd like a refresher on Caniva and company, you can go back and listen to podcasts 4, 6, and 7, our miniseries on the crisis of the 3rd century. So we know that there were Christians among the Goths way back in 251. And we know that the Goths brought back Uphilus, uh Christians' ancestors, a little after Abritus. 
So Christianity was spreading amongst the Goths. It seems slow and small uh, through at least the second half of the third century, but it was there. And we know that the Council of Nicaea in 325, there was a bishop of Crimea in attendance, another man named Theodophilus or Theophilus from Gothia, and the kingdom of Bosporanian, and the kingdom of Bosporanian declared Christianity the religion of its people. As you may remember, the kingdom of Bosporanian was a kingdom allied with Rome, which sat on the eastern portion of the Crimean Peninsula and land directly across the Sea of Azov uh, and the Strait of Kerch in northern Black Sea region. They had been controlled by a larger and stronger Gruthungi kingdom, leading to the use of their navy by the raiding Goths back in the 3rd century. So we know by these past events that the Goths had been exposed to, and at least a small portion of the population converted to Christianity. This puts us back in the lands of Gethudia, north of the Danube, amongst the Tervingi, where Wulfila is preaching to the people. There is a man named Philosturgius from the 4th and 5th century, who was a fellow Arian clergyman that wrote a lot of what we know of Wulfila's biography. In 341, he was named a bishop by the Romans and remained in the land of the Goths until 348 when he was driven out by Arioric. Arioric and other Goth leaders uh, were utilizing the minority Christian population as a scapegoat for external and internal threats in the Turingi world. The nascent Christian church in Gethudia was said to have been eroding Gothic culture and dividing the populace. We also know that there were Catholic and Orthodox Christians at this time, and another sect named the Audians that were also subject to persecution in Gothudia. There are some alarming stories associated with this persecution. One story involves 26 Gothic martyrs of Wingeric. Wingeric was another Gothic reek that persecuted Christians in his community, Aryan Christians in this case, by burning them to death. And an interesting side note on these 26 martyrs was that the, the, the martyrs themselves had Cappadocian names or family names that were associated with perhaps slaves from Cappadocia, much like Wulfila. My favorite martyr story from the Goths has to be Saba. And so let's take a couple minutes to tell Saba's story and why he became Saint Saba the Goth. Saba was born in 334 in modern western Romania near the Bazu River, which is a tributary of the Danube. He was a Goth by birth and family descendant. He was a Goth by birth and claimed his whole family of descendants as Goths, meaning he could not claim heritage from a far-off Christian community like Wolfila. He converted to Christianity, probably Catholic by their standards, which would be closer to Orthodox by today's standards, he was also a poor man in his village and considered nobody of consequence to the powers that be. In 369 CE, Anthonaric was implementing a round of persecutions of Christians in his sphere of influence, which Anthonaric is the son of Aoric, who had done the first round of persecutions back in 348. So Saba's village fell under the jurisdiction of a nobleman under Anthonaric, who commanded all villages to send out their Christians in the village. Saba's village claimed that there were no Christians in their village, thus protecting our hero, Saba. Apparently, this was a common response for many villages 
because the nobleman in charge of the persecution of this area ordered the villages to force all inhabitants to eat sacrificial meat, which within pagan society, at least in the Gothic pagan tradition, sacrificial meat plays uh, an important role. Uh, We see this happen all the time. Sacrificing of something uh, obviously is very important to many, many religions. This would reveal any Christian living in the area as only a pagan would eat the meat separating the pagans from the Christians. The story goes that the nobleman's officials came to Saba's village where the sacrificial meat was prepared, but meat was also prepared only for Saba and the Christians in the village that was not from a sacrificed animal. In front of the officials, Saba is given the meat from his helpful friends, and he decides to throw the meat on the ground, professing his loyalty to Christianity and the one true God. Saba, having outed himself, despite the help of the villagers, was now exiled by the officials and forced to flee his village and live away for some time. He was allowed to come back a year or so later, where the village was once again trying to protect him from the Reek's officials by lying about the presence of Christians in the village. As the village elders lied to the officials, Saba stepped forward and proclaimed his faith once again, not as a pagan, but as a Christian, and that these people, the villagers that were trying to protect him, were lying. He was exiled once again from the community, only to finally return again in 372 CE. This time, he and a priest named Sansalus celebrated Easter very publicly and conspicuously in the village. A nobleman named Atherid was told about this illegal act and came to the village several days later. Saba was then beaten, whipped, racked, reportedly upon a wagon wheel, and then drowned in the Bazu River. The whole time, during this torture, he still was proclaiming his faith and his loyalty to the one true God. The date of his death was April 12, 372 CE. And despite repeated efforts from his pagan friends in the village to help, he was compelled to make proclamations that eventually led to his demise. It is a fascinating story from this time period. Some of the many things that we can take from this story is that most of the Goths were indeed still pagans and not Christians. That the powers that be, like throughout history, from the beginning of time all the way up to today, find people to persecute at times for a variety of reasons, using the scapegoat idea that we mentioned earlier. Additionally, that common people really are good to each other when they live in a community together and they know each other, despite the rhetoric of external powers and internal powers that be, they still will be kind to each other. Now, we will have more on the Gothic religion, how it compares to Christianity in later episodes. But this is an interesting story that says a lot about uh, the culture of the Goths, says a lot about the power structure and uh, early Christianity within the Gothic uh, realm of influence. Okay, so let's go back to our friend Little Wolf. He is exiled in 348, and he goes to Moesia during the first round of persecutions against Christians, in Guthudia. He settled just south of the Danube River, probably with many followers and other Aryan Christians that were expelled by their pagan brethren in the north. They settled around the city of Nicopolis id Nostrum, which is about 35 miles south of the Danube River, or about 60 kilometers. 
There's no way of knowing exactly how many Christian Goths were expelled by Aoric from the north of the Danube in 348, or how many ex escorted Wulfila to Nicopolis. We can assume that it is a decent number from the time period because the amount of writing he did to support these Goths and their form of Christianity, including uh, the translation of the Bible into the Gothic language and many other letters that he wrote during this time period. The Gothic Bible, which was translated from the Greek Bible, uh, was an, a huge feat for Wulfila to accomplish. As I've mentioned before in the podcast, the Gothic language was not written down. Therefore, Wulfila had to create an alphabet for the Gothic language. Now, I'm not a linguist, and I do not have any background in language, uh, especially creating one. I never even uh, seemed to uh, be able to use Pig Latin uh, correctly as a kid. But Wulfila fashioned an alphabet from a variety of sources. And the first is using the rune marking that the Goths traditionally used to a small degree. Uh, most of the usage of the Goths' runes were for engravings on jewelry or ceremonial pieces, uh, like the ring of Pietrosa, which was a necklace that was found in southern Romania in 1837. And the story of the ring of Pietrosa and the treasure that was it was found with is a great example of a lot of the Gothic rune engravery and the journeys that these pieces have made sometimes. There were over 20 pieces in this finding that were of Gothic origin. The items were from the time period of somewhere between 250 and 400 CE. The treasure was buried together in a mound that was certainly placed there for a specific reason. And this has led to many theories and ideas of why the treasure was buried. But my favorite of these uh, stories is that Anthonaric, who we'd mentioned just a, a little bit ago as being a reek of the Turingi, buried the treasure there as the Huns were pushing Anthonaric out of his land and the whole area of Guthudia was under all kinds of stress because of the invading Huns. No one is sure exactly of the origins uh, of the metal uh, that was used in these pieces or the reasons that it was buried, but we do know what happened to them once they were dug up, or at least some of them. Of all the items, only 12 have survived to this day. The whole treasure has been moved around, changed hands, or stolen at various points. The ring was stolen and actually cut, ruining a small portion of the engravings upon it. The inscription of the ring reads, Guten Jove Halig, which means Goths Jove blesses, or Jove blesses the Goths, which... Jove was a god in the pagan Gothic religion. Now, the bulk of the treasure was moved around during various wars, including World War I and how it had to be evacuated out of Romania to Russia. But it today sits in a Roman museum. And I put some pictures of the treasure and runes on the Facebook page and on Twitter. So back to Wolfila and his Gothic alphabet. He began with the runes that were available to him. And then he began to use the Greek alphabet. He incorporated several Latin symbols into the alphabet to round out his creation. He then proceeded to use the new alphabet to translate the Greek Bible into the Gothic language. The Gothic Bible was one of the first, but many attempts at putting the Bible into the language of the people it served. In early Christianity, there seems to be many attempts to translate the Bible into the native language of its adherents until the church becomes more centralized and controlling. This is when we would eventually see 
powers in the church clamp down on the accessibility of the Bible all through the Dark Ages and early Middle Ages, all the way up until really the printing press comes to Germany in the 1400s. Much of Wolfie Gothic Bible has been lost today, but the New Testament portion and a small amount of the Old Testament uh, is still around. It has been re- reported, though, that Wolfie did not translate the Old Testament Book of Kings because he did not think the Goths needed to be inspired to be any more warlike than they already were. Uh, for those people that may not be familiar with Kings, Kings does have quite a bit of bloodshed and warring going on. Now, much of what we know about the Gothic language comes from this Bible and the usage of the words in the translations. So we get an idea of, because of the word choice and the usage that Wolfie went with in his Bible, because of our being able to cross-reference it with the Greek original source, of how the Goths would have viewed things, the importance on certain words and certain ideas. He also wrote many ecclesiastical pieces during this time in Moesia, tending to the exiled Gothic flock that we've learned quite a bit about Ufila and his uh, ideas on religion. Additionally, we know that Wulfila took part in the Council of Constantinople in 360 and many other Constantinople meetings and other synods and councils throughout the empire. He seems to have kept his congregation together and thriving as Jordanish mentions this congregation was still living in Moesia in the 6th century, and later writers included them all the way up until the 9th century. So he was able to do a pretty good job of keeping his Goths within the Roman Empire in Moesia together and culturally and ethnically separate from the Roman population of the area. Now, Anthonaric, Aoric's son, and one of the main Greeks or leaders of the Goths, persecuted many people north of the Danube. Uh, Fritigern, who will be prominent in our story pretty soon here, will be another Reek that opposes Anthonaric and possibly colludes with Wolfila and his Christian Goths now living in Roman Moesia. Now, part of this flock that Wolfila is tending to in Moesia is his adopted son, Oxentius of Dostorum, who would go on and become involved in a dispute with the Bishop of Milan and a leader of the Arian movement within the Catholic Christian Church. Oxentius would later write a letter that included something called the Creed of Wolfila, or the Creed of Euphilus in Latin, which would play heavily into the Arian Church's traditions for years to come. In 383, Oxentius would be expelled, along with many other Arians, from Theodosius' Eastern Empire, and would flee to Milan, where he would be embroiled in the controversy with Ambrose. Wulfila would eventually die in Constantinople that same year, around the age of 72. So, we're going to stop here this week with the death of Wulfila. Next week, we will continue our story with the Goths in the mid-4th century, and moving into the events that lead up to the Battle of Adrianople. Now, as a teacher... The summer is a time period where I have a little bit more uh, availability of my time to do research and work on the podcast. Now that the school year started, my day job includes facilitating the education of hundreds of eighth graders in social studies. So 
I will be adopting a new schedule for the podcast, and I will be releasing episodes every two weeks. I will work on the research script for the first 10, 11, 12 days of that week, and then release each episode every other Sunday night. So that puts our next episode set to be released in two weeks on September 9th. I'll let you know if this schedule changes, but I think this is probably a good pace for the podcast, uh, at least during the school year for now. Uh, but if you would like to check out some more info and pictures for the podcast, be sure to follow us on Twitter at History of the Barbarians or on Facebook. And I'd like to thank you for listening this week, and we will see you next time. <laughs>